0: And welcome to Willamette Common Law. This episode is part of the Matters of First Impression series. I'm Professor Kelly Gamble, Assistant Professor of Law and Director of Academic Excellence here at Willamette. Joining me today are Professor Karen Sandrick and Professor Curtis Bridgman. In addition to teaching contracts, deals, secured transactions, patent law, and IP law and practice, Professor Sandrick also serves as our Associate Dean for faculty here at Willamette Law. Professor Bridgman is a former dean of the law school and currently teaches contracts, secure transactions, law and literature, and jurisprudence. Professor Bridgman, Professor Sandrick, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: (laughs) Jinx. (laughs) So I like to start these episodes with a window into your fuller lives. Talk about something you like to do for fun or something that shapes the way you engage with the world.
2: Sure, I'll go first. Well, I like to do uh, anything active, I would say. I was a soccer player in a previous life. And um, now I like to, I don't know, run, go to Mitchell Brown. I'll play golf every now and then, not as much as I should. I also love to uh, just uh, be in the kitchen, cooking, baking, drinking wine, all of the above at the same time.
0: (laughs) What's your favorite thing to bake?
2: Mm, You know, my students actually will get a little bit of this. Um, I would say I bake cookies and muffins uh, quite a bit. And depending on when the class is, at some point, I will bring something in for my students. So the easy stuff, because I have a four-year-old now that's baking with me. Mm. I used to do more elaborate things, but now it's got to be in and out of the kitchen pretty quickly. Yeah. Just pour the sugar in. Yeah. Yeah. More butter, more sugar. We're good to go. Good. And what do you like to play golf? Anywhere that professor Curtis Bridgman is <laughs> so that I can play he, off of his he,
1: ball instead of mine. I was going to say, he doesn't like the fairway very much. Fairway.
2: <laughs> you know what? Uh, at least if I miss hit, I'm like still relatively in the area. Uh, professor Bridgman. One time we were playing golf, hit it into the street of the neighborhood that we were playing. in. So I don't have the capacity to do that, but um, yeah, should be more in the fairways, but around town. Yeah. Um, Salem, McMinnville, Portland, anywhere that I am. I'm not a part of any club, so I kind of mooch off of other people.
0: Professor Bridgman, what about you?
1: Yeah, I I do like to play a little bit of golf. I like the outdoor activity stuff too. I do a little bit of boating and biking and things like that. Um, And I like to, uh, my wife and I have restored a few older homes. So I like to do that kind of stuff that she watches on HGTV and then tells me to go do. So <clears throat> that's, that's been sort of a big part of our life uh, the last few years. Uh, and I like to, i not, I've done a little bit of baking. I did some of the COVID baking, but my preference is to eat things that my students have baked rather than a bake <laughs> things for my students.
2: Hint, hint. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So this,
1: this never works by the way, but that's, uh, <laughs> I'll keep dropping those hints.
2: No, actually, Professor Bridgman, you can bake a mean, uh, a mean loaf of bread.
1: I used to. Yeah, okay. I, I still do that sometimes. I've, I've got a few tricks. Scones are my, um, mm. that's the go-to right now. I get lots of scone requests.
0: Something fun that I know about you is that you know each other from elsewhere. You didn't meet originally here at Willamette Law. You guys want to want to talk about that?
2: Yeah, I'll go. I'll go first. I actually met uh, Professor Bridgman at one of the pre-admit whatever you call those things, luncheons at Florida State. I was thinking about going to Florida State and went to an event and Professor Bridgman was at my lunch table. And so he was a professor at Florida State at the time. And I do remember one very quick conversation because I was embarrassed. I was so honest. I don't know if you remember this, Professor Bridgman, probably not You had a lot of students, but you asked each of us what subject you thought that we would like, or, or want to engage in and not. And I had just done, um, uh, a really well-known great, great professor, uh, past now, but professor guy had just done Roe v. Wade con law mock class. So I had just come out of the class and I was like, con law, I'm going to, this is so fun. And I don't think I'll enjoy contracts, which is what professor Richmond teaches. And he was like, I challenge you, Um, And actually ended up being, uh, you know, spoiler alert. I now teach contracts, my favorite subject, but Professor Bridgman was my contracts professor. So on Monday morning at 8 a.m., my very first uh, class in law school was taught by Professor Bridgman. So,
1: yeah. Do you remember what what case did we do first? I don't remember. Was it Hawkins or?
2: Hawkins. And I do remember because you opened the class with. Uh, this is, this is like baby professor days, right? This is, <laughs> I know it's coming now. You know, what's coming. I even remember the name. i I was never friends with this guy, but I remember, I remember this name, Mr. Parker. This is professor of impersonation here. Mr. Parker, tell me what the word a sunset" means. And I remember just thinking, thank goodness. My name is not Mr. Parker. He didn't call on me. Um, and two, what does the sunset mean? which actually I had right in front of me, but in that moment of freak out, I'm not sure I would have answered very well, which is unfortunately what also happened to Mr. Parker.
1: I mean, in, in fairness, it was, it was in the first line of the case.
2: It was the first word. <laughs> because Mr. First- Parker didn't know the answer and you were joking, but I didn't know it at the time. You were joking, a mock anger of saying, are you telling me, Mr. Parker, that you didn't look up the first word of your first class ever in law school? And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And then we all realized that he was kidding and that it was going to be really fun. Well,
1: you say then, you mean like four weeks in, you realize that (laughs) I was really harmless.
2: (laughs) These are things that you probably don't do anymore, huh? Do you open your class that way? Do you start with Hawkins?
1: Well, we usually Uh start with Hawkins now, but, um, but because we do damages in the second semester, as you know, but we, I do just dive right into a case. I mean, students should know this. You should come prepared the first day. I, my view is that you're making a huge investment of time and treasure to be in law school. And I'm not going to waste your time going over a syllabus that I already gave you. Um, I think a lot of professors feel this way, you know, that we're, let's just get right to it so you can look at the syllabus beforehand it's pretty self-explanatory we just want to get right to the material and so I just call on someone right from the start normally but it does kind of freak people out I had a student um, you know this student actually uh, a few years ago who told me her second actually she was telling a group of students um, and I was there In her second year, about her first day of being called on, and um, I called on a um, a male student. I won't say his name just thinking, but uh, uh, let's just say Mr. Parker. And Mr. Parker just happened to be sitting like right in front of her. It's tiered seating, sort of like a stadium. And so I'm looking in her general direction, but calling on Mr. Parker. And I call on Mr. Parker and ask you know, tell me the facts of Hawkins versus McGee or something like that. And she claimed that the thought that went through her head was, I hope I'm not Mr. Parker. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's sort of a lesson there, which is this, that, you know, to us, we're not, we're not trying to be scary or anything like that. It's just that students get really excited and nervous and everything about the first day. And you should try to remember that it's just not, you know, this is, you're not being tested or anything like that. We're just trying to get going with multiple voices in the room right from the beginning and set the tone for what we want our classes to be, which is participatory. We want everybody to be engaged and participating in class and, if, you know, the hope is that when I call on Mr. Parker, that everybody's thinking, well, how would I answer that? And students, unfortunately, sometimes feel like it's kind of a Like they're being tested that day, but that's not our intentions at all. And I've since then, since those, all those years ago, when Sandrick was in my class, I really try to make clear to students that, that, you know, what this is, what we're, what we're really trying to do there and what we're not trying to do.
0: So this is just a warning listeners. If your last name is Parker, be ready (laughs) on the first day of contracts,
1: you're (laughs) up. Oh, could be, could be anybody.
0: So, <laughs> so uh, which one of you was at Willamette first? Uh, that would be me.
2: Yeah. Um, so I went into private practice, um, uh, came actually back to my alma mater, which is Florida state. I did a two year uh, kind of a fellowship, if you will, to see if I was interested in the teaching and researching. And then, When I got here, I was in my first year at Willamette and there was a Dean search and it was, it's just a small world. It was so fun to be a part of this Dean search and be like, oh my gosh, my favorite professor, my mentor could be our next Dean. So, but I do like to joke
0: that I was, I was here first. Well, so let's get down to contracts. Both of you teach contracts. And contracts govern so much of our lives, from international corporate transactions to Facebook marketplace. Contracts say what we can and cannot do, what we will and will not pay for. Can you talk about what interests you in contracts and what contracts class is about? I think at the top, most simply, just a
2: contract is a is a promise or a set of promises that if not followed through in the way that... Uh, was agreed upon gives some rise to a remedy gives some rise to some some action law and as you all already heard I did not think I was going to like contracts I thought I wanted to do some sort of civil rights or you know constitutional law and for me uh, in pr- in particular after practice I I did uh, patent litigation so innovation and. Things like impregnable sewer liner technology, you know,
0: <laughs> sort of really the, really interesting stuff. I know. To go to law school for. I,
2: I remember being like, "This is not what I really wanted to work on, but it is important that our sewer liners are not porous." That was my last case before joining <laughs> uh, uh, academia. But um, I it's to, for, for me it's really exciting to think about. Okay. When we go to create innovation in some sort of area, pharmaceutical area, and we're combining parties that have different interests, different experiences, different aims, how do we uh, empower them? How do we plan for their lives and the risk and the uncertainty that might be there by formalizing their agreement into some writing Uh, So for me, I I love just kind of the idea of how do we communicate what we want and what happens when we don't communicate something or we don't put it in writing in the way that we want, how do we resolve that conflict? And that's what I research now as well. Kind of what happens when, uh, for example, something I was writing on earlier this morning is uh, public private partnerships. So when we've got this thing like COVID pandemic and the government really needs a vaccination quickly, and they've got the money, and they have some of the expertise, but not all of it, and they don't have the manufacturing capacity, they're going to partner with someone like Moderna. And so Moderna has the expertise of the researchers. They've got the pipeline that they can get the vaccinations out, but they don't have the money. And so we put these two parties together. And you think, how is this going to work? We have two very different parties. We've got two very different industries. And so much of it in the end, spoiler alert, they're still fighting about some of this stuff, um, came down to really not Totally planning in the way that we would want them to plan. Uh, so for me, that's really motivating. Kind of thinking about how do we plan better for parties and put that into writing. I love collaborative relationships in that way.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's all really well said. And um, I think part of what what Professor Sandrick has done a great job in particular with in her writing is talking about things like, I mean, I think a lot of times in, in law school we end up focusing on. You learn so much of the law through. Parties who have litigated, things have fallen apart and they end up in court. So we teach a lot through cases and cases are, case, are situations where it's sort of worst case scenario in some ways because the relationship is broken down, certainly in contract law, relationship is broken down and to the point where we they have to go to a third party, a court to get this sorted out. And that's not what anybody wanted when they started this. It's not like in tort law or criminal law, often you have parties who are who end up together by no choice of their own in um, contract law, these parties thought it was going to work out. And so we end up learning about all these cases where it goes poorly, but a lot of times what we need to figure out is how can we write contracts better so that we don't have to litigate. And so she's done some very interesting work on how competitors, for example, can create contracts that help them build the kind of trust that they need to work together in a sphere that where they want to work together, even though overall, they're actually competitors. And so that's what's really neat about, you know, about contract law, I think, is that it's a lot more, there's a lot more to it than people would expect. In other words, it's further reaching than people would expect the cases can be a lot more interesting. For one thing, I think Part of what it can do is you can achieve a a certain amount of social justice through contract law, believe it or not. So, for example, I think part of the point of contract law is so that the parties can trust each other when they might not otherwise have a foundation for trust. If we didn't have contract law, people would still enter into agreements and they would still um, enter on into complex projects and things like that. But who they did those uh, agreements with would be much more limited. They would have to rely on social forms of trust building and and so forth. The other thing I think students should realize about contract law: I don't know any practicing lawyer who calls them. And you say, "What kind of law do you do?" Who says contracts? You know, they don't. There there are some people who do construction contracts, and a lot of our examples are construction cases, which is partly why my little side interest of doing renovations and stuff is kind of it pays off in the classroom sometimes because mm-hmm. so many cases are about construction besides that that's not why we have you learn contracts in the first year it's because they're actually ubiquitous so employment law there's lots of people who say they're an employment lawyer where those are obviously contracts insurance is a contract health is usually done through contracts patent law is a blend of contracts usually. It's just, there's so many areas of law that actually have contracts as their base that what you learn in first-year contracts is gonna be important for you almost no matter what you do, even in many areas of criminal law, quite frankly, um, even though you won't find a practicing lawyer probably who says that their specialty is contracts.
2: I also love contracts because everyone that comes to class that first day no matter what your experience is, you have entered into a contract at this point in your lives. And I I think we can pull from those experiences, think through that. I love having students bring to class a contract that they've entered, or for example, like one of my favorite things, I don't know if you do this, Bridgman, but like bring warranties, like you recently purchased a coffee maker because you now need to drink a lot of coffee or you've purchased a toaster, like bring to class your new headphones, like bring to class your warranties and let's see if you actually have anything. The answer is always basically no, but I I think it's really fun. You know, you just entered into a new, um, you know, you've got a new apartment, so you've got a lease. I I think it's really neat in that first year in the fall semester, getting to study something that is going to directly impact you your entire life and your friends and family around you. And again, even if you don't practice in what we might consider more of a, a transactional or a civil style of practice, it is going to impact you in your own practice of law, whatever you do. It's the most important one else subject, obviously.
0: Well, and
1: <laughs> it's clearly the most fun. I mean, yeah. it's it's your new favorite subject. You just, you just <laughs> wait and say, not many students say that they, I want to go to law school so I can study contract law. But it turns out, I think, to be a lot more satisfying for many of them than some of the things that they thought they were there for, like constitutional law or something like that.
2: I actually just got an email from one of our students one of our one-alls L's uh, is up in Alaska um uh working up there and it, it was a it was a fun email to get it was uh it started off with I really didn't enjoy contracts that much and I was like where are you going with this email <laughs> um I mean I, I we joke but you know she kind of said I, I I didn't enjoy contracts that much I kind of had to push myself to get through and I had a lot of fun in the practice days. And now I understand how to connect it all because all of a sudden I'm seeing this every single day and I'm going back to that class and now I'm putting it all together. I wish I had put it together in that way earlier, but she's having so much fun kind of connecting all these pieces and she didn't think she liked it. And now she's wanting to do more of that style of practice. So I think even for those students that are like, I'm coming in to be a prosecutor, you know, or whatever, coming in to do something, I think that oftentimes... Um, you know, at some point in your three years, you're going to go, I love this stuff. Let's go.
1: Yeah. And and probably, I think a, a high percentage of students end up doing something very different from what they thought they were going to do when mm-hmm. they came to law school anyway. So it's kind of like, you know, changing your major as an undergraduate. It's just, um, you, you get in there. One of the great things about law schools, you get to try these different things. You get to try them not only in in law school, but as you say, in your work experience during the summer. And so just keep an open mind about everything. I I think these students should really stay open-minded about all of it because you don't really know what you're going to fall in love with. I know so many attorneys who are having wonderful careers and really like what they're doing. And most of them had no idea they'd be doing that thing when they started.
2: I can definitely say I did not know what patent law was (laughs) when I when I went into law school I did not know what intellectual property was so yeah I'm I'm in a case in point example right there
0: you've you've done a good job selling contracts though as as we've talked about on the podcast a little bit you don't get to choose your classes you have to take contracts so now you're lucky enough to take contracts from from one of these two folks in <laughs> the fall and it makes it may even makes me want to take contracts and I I I didn't like contracts in law school but then I loved contracts in practice but my contracts professor he he wasn't allowed to call on anyone because he had made too many people cry, and so <laughs> he was only allowed to call on volunteers. And then he was he was mean to them, but but at least it Just was to a be choice. Clear,
1: Mr. Parker did not cry. Right? No, at not I in class. I've never had like anybody cry. Tears in, class. in contracts
0: here, no. so that's so that's great. So <laughs> let's let's talk about your classes for a second. What should students expect when they come to your class, and and what do you expect of students? Kind of how do you approach the class?
2: Well, I do think you should look up words like a subset. <laughs> sure thing. I mean, look I joke up the words when I, you don't know. I know, but I, I joke, but I but I'm I'm serious. I think you know. I, I would say both of us, or I would go so far as saying all of us professors would say we want you to read the material. I know for my class, and I think this is true for Professor Bridgman, we don't assign a lot of reading in terms of like your first class will be 10 pages of reading, maybe 12 or 15, if that. It's not that many pages, but we want you to go slow and to read and to spend the time looking up those words. For me, I think it's always wise to either write the definition or like put it in some notes because if you do get called on. It might be a little bit stressful and all that will go away. So I want students to come to class well-prepared. It doesn't mean you need to be perfect by any means. It doesn't mean that you're going to get everything right. Indeed, I hope you don't. Otherwise, it'd be a really boring class. But I want you to come in having read the material, ready to engage, ready to be collaborative in our class discussions and to be ready to have fun, but to work hard.
1: Yeah, I think there's a really important point embedded in what you're saying, and that's that you know law school is a professional school you're you're um hopefully joining a profession here and it's just a different mindset from w- the way most people were in high school and college so in college for most students if you if you did all the reading like you're way ahead of the game because most people are not doing all the reading in all their classes and so you know, a really high level performer in college, for the most part, would do all the reading and would study for her exams. And that that's sort of, that's a lot. If you did all of that, then you're doing really well. But the way attorneys think, is probably, is skip law school for a moment, if you were an attorney, it would never work, like you would never show up for a hearing and then be You know, and suppose you're there, the hearing and the judge asks you a question, which might happen about uh, a legal point that has to do with your client. It would never work to say, well, your honor, to be honest, I read that, but I didn't really understand what it meant. And I was sort of hoping you could explain it to me. Right. You know, you have to prepare yourself. Um, Lawyers have to do the job until the job is done. And that's that's the way professionals are in any walk of life. Whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a carpenter or anything else, it's different from being a um, student at a lower level. It's about preparing yourself. It's because you're there to learn. It's about developing good habits. So I really want you to de-emphasize worrying about what happens if you get called on in class. But I want you to put a renewed emphasis on getting yourself prepared and taking personal responsibility for your education in a way that most students have not done prior to this stage. It's just, you have to start to think the way lawyers think. And and that, when, when people say think like a lawyer, part of what they mean is the legal reasoning. But also that just means a certain kinds of personal responsibility for facility with whatever the task is or whatever the material is for the day. You're you're being hired to be an expert on something. And so we don't expect you to be an expert um, on day one, but we expect you to do more than just have your eyes pass over the page. And if you can do that, if you can take that attitude, you're gonna have so much fun with it actually. Um, and take that personal responsibility for your education. You're gonna have a lot more fun with it.
0: And as students are coming up with study plans, legal reading, is it, does it go faster or slower than ordinary reading?
2: My goodness. I remember <laughs> the weekend before that first day of class on Monday. I actually only remember obviously 8am contracts. I don't remember what other classes, <laughs> I had but I do remember that weekend thinking, oh my goodness, what is wrong with me? It took me so many hours to read 10 pages. And it's because in that opening semester in particular, you don't have the knowledge. I felt like I was looking up every other word in a legal dictionary and it took me a long time. Uh, Now I got faster But the opening weeks, I remember the opening month, opening six weeks of law school, it would take me a couple hours to read for one class every single single day. And I was one of those, I wanted to read every single word and really comprehend it. So I would say it's a lot slower. You know, I, I just said, oh, we only are going to give you 10, 12, 15 pages of reading, but that's not going to take you 30 minutes. That's going to take you longer and it should take you longer. And, and I think expecting that and planning for that, um, can really can go a long way.
1: But also- I think you, you, you can, I think, because there yes it's slower but there is a learning curve you get a lot faster at it eventually because there's a format to legal writing you'll especially learn this in your legal writing class um but it's throughout the entire discipline really and once you learn that and get a facility with it then the reading goes a lot faster it's still not like say most fiction or anything like that but it's a lot faster eventually Look, don't worry so much about memorizing every detail and every fact in in the case. It's certainly in my class because that's not that's not that case isn't really our case. It's just an example, you know, and what we're trying to get is a larger principle there.
0: And I think that's something that that students often get later than is helpful. Right. Yeah, because they're trying to memorize the cases as opposed to trying to understand the law. Right? It's the law of nowhere that we teach. Right? Uh, yeah. But sometimes it's just a going little back. bit
1: different. Like, and yeah. some classes are like, say, constitutional law. You know, when you're reading mm-hmm. Supreme Court cases, that's the law of the land. Right. Um, usually, you start off reading the old ones, but the you know the facts there maybe really matter more than. Whereas in contracts, you know, we're reading a case out of Minnesota or something like that, and we don't expect you to. Um, most of you are not going to go practice in Minnesota. We're just reading this as as an example for a particular general principle that we want you to learn. And these examples are very helpful, but they aren't the point themselves. You can
0: go back to the syllabus and you can go back to the table of contents in the textbook to really situate that case. What am I supposed to be taking from this case? And do that before you read it so that you know what to look for as you read. I think that, that sometimes can help people focus.
1: And I, I would add to that, I, that's advice I give all the time. And I would also add, if there's a case right after the one you just read that looks very similar, ask yourself, well, why are we reading this one then? Why why is this one included if it looks a lot like that one? Or how are they different? Why are they both in here? What's the relationship from this one to that one?
0: And I just want to stop right here and and pitch two resources. So the first is JD Edge by Access Lex. All of you have access to this. You have an email in your inbox. Uh, If you can't find it, reach out to admissions. But I strongly recommend working through the JD Edge program, which thanks to Willamette's partnership with Access Lex is completely free for all of you. Uh, JD Edge introduces foundational law school skills like uh, legal analytical writing, legal reading, time management, And all of those things are are necessary to be successful in law school. Uh, The second resource is a book called Reading Like a Lawyer by Ruth Ann McKinney. It really breaks down how to read to prepare for class, in particular, how to read appellate cases. Uh, What is their structure? Where is the information you need uh, to be able to pull out? So taking advantage of these resources can help you be prepared for contracts and all your other classes on day one let's talk for a minute about student success so what is students who are successful in your class have in common with each other and we'll kind of combine this with your advice for for coming into law school what's your best advice
2: i think students that are successful are those that are reading the material that are engaged that have an open dialogue going with a professor and classmates, you know, in terms of kind of as, as professor Bridgman was just saying, if you're not feeling like, you know, what's going on in class, come talk to us. I think the successful, the most successful students are ones that I've always talked to in office hours or most often maybe after class and said, okay, well, what did you get in the case prior and now what do you have and where's the disconnect and, you know, having that kind of open dialogue can be really helpful I think the engagement in class is something that you have to learn what works for you. Professor Bridgman and I will kind of, we have a little shtick about this, but I think it's a good one for how to prepare and like what not to do. We're probably, we are on extreme opposites of what to do and what not to do in class. Uh, When I was a student, to a fault, I do not recommend this uh, to this extreme. I am a very Good typist. I, I type very well. And I would take down every single word, not just that the professor said, but that the students would say, which is mm, not a great idea. And so after class, I would have 10 pages of just dialogue. And I was so focused on getting the words down in the class that I wasn't actually engaged in what I was supposed to be learning because I was just trying to get that stuff down. And so it was not the most efficient way to go about things. And it wasn't as much fun in class. After class, I'd have to go back and go through these notes and try to go, oh, so this is what the, oh, delete all that, what that student said. Now I understand what it means. Where by the second semester, I learned, okay, I do want to take notes in class but also I want to have my head up. I want to be listening. I want to be engaging and I don't have to take down every single, it's not about getting the perfect words down. The perfect words are often not said in class, but it's about trying to really understand that concept. And then Professor Bridgman, I mean, you were writing like haikus and not taking any notes, right?
1: And I had a friend who was like you and who got uh, very good grades and we sat next to each other in just about every class and she felt like she couldn't be engaged unless she was writing almost everything down that her mind would drift unless she was doing that. I felt like I couldn't be engaged if I were doing that like I had to if I'm trying to write everything down then I can't really think about it so I tried to prepare before class so that I could be engaged in class and yeah I I goofed around a little bit more than I should have probably <laughs> um but the I think the main thing is that. You just you have to find that right balance for you, I would say, obviously, but don't necessarily do what everybody else tells you you should be doing either, right? At least your fellow students. So, for example, one of the things I think that students should be doing that's um, really important, there's too much of a tendency to take, you know, exhaustive notes and then create this outline of the class. If you haven't heard about outlines before, you will. Um, it's sort of a law school tradition to outline a class that everything you learn to write this outline. And I, I started doing this my first semester and I, I was even in contracts. I remember working on this in contracts. I was bored to tears for the greatest subject in the world. And I realized <laughs> I could go buy an outline for 20 bucks, right? I don't know why I was writing this thing. <laughs> and what I discovered though, was that I learned best by doing practice problems, uh, practice old essay questions. Now you can find all these I've learned now, you know, take a, you have access to all these multiple choice questions. You can take a multiple choice question and treat it like a little mini essay question. But what you're really learning to do is not memorize rules, but you're learning to apply them to real world situations. You came to law school to help people, to you know, help them accomplish something or sort out a problem or something like that. And I think that these outlines and these lists of rules and flashcards and all that stuff, it's like I always tell students, it's like having a book about how to play the piano. So if I gave you a book about how to play the piano and you read this book and you memorize the book and I gave you a written test on how to play the piano, maybe you ace that written test, but that doesn't mean you can play So to play, you you have to practice playing the instrument. And for us, playing the instrument is actually applying what you're learning to factual scenarios, either real world or hypothetical. You know, for now, a lot of it's hypothetical. But a lot of students get really good at memorizing rules, but aren't very good at applying them. And the reason they aren't very good at applying them is that you have to practice applying it. It's just a different muscle. Just like playing the piano is different from reading about the way the chords are formed or whatever. So I th- I think that um, it's really important to spend a fair amount of time, not just at the very end, but throughout the semester trying to apply what you're learning to new hypotheticals and, and see if you can play the instrument or not.
0: That's something we've talked about on this podcast, making sure that there's preparing for class. There's being engaged in class. And then there's that key piece after class where you're going back and you're doing those application problems and you're trying to synthesize your knowledge. And that's something I see with students is where they are really, really focused on having an outline, but having mm-hmm. an outline isn't particularly valuable. Making an outline can be valuable. Using an outline to do an application uh, problem can be valuable, but but collecting outlines is rarely a good study strategy.
1: Yeah, and I think even making the outline can be valuable. But I've talked to students before, like, "Hey, how's how's this, you know the study going for your class?" and you're, uh, and they're like, "Well, it's great. I'm almost done with my outline." I course like, well, you know, the exam So, you know that. So I think that um, being able to uh, this is too much. It's because. People are worried that if they're not doing what everybody else is doing, then they're, they're missing out. And so if everybody else is just scurrying around writing outlines, then they scurry around to write outlines, too. And so just remember that the law, if it were as easy as just memorizing crap, then we you wouldn't make any money at it. Right? We, you could just go to the DMV, <laughs> right? And they, you could ask somebody and they would tell you the rule. So it, it, it's really a lot more complicated than that. It's applying what you're the all all these complicated rules to new situations that's the tricky bit, and that that takes practice.
0: So I have I have two more questions for you, and these are really about launching our students with 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 great information, kind of in a non academic way. So the first one is, what's your best you know Willamette Law School tip? Are there personnel or places or uh, places that you have the best candy? Uh, something that that you think they should know about really about the building. And then second, I, both of you do or have lived in Salem. What's your, what's your best Salem tip? Where do you go to eat, to drink, to play? What should students know about?
1: So I would suggest, I I actually am going to suggest something that I don't quite know the answer to yet, but I think it's crucial that students figure out. And it's not so much about Willamette, but I think right now we're, cre- we, you know, a lot of opportunities have been created for remote learning and remote study and all of that. But you need to figure out how to create a sense of community for yourself as a law student. So first of all, don't try to go it alone. I think the the students who, you know, you know, if the more um, you are detached from other students and, and Maybe you're not living alone, but you're not living with law students. You're not you just go home and you're not around students except when you're in class. I think that's a bad idea. I think you need to have a community of learners around you. You will learn more from each other than you will from us just because of the opportunity. Right. You're only around us so much, even though we're available outside of class and all of that. If there's 60 students in my class, you're going to learn more from each other than you will from me. Uh, that's always been true and now in such a an age of so many opportunities to be remote it's that's really convenient in a lot of ways but it also I think students haven't quite figured out yet the best way to do that there's a transition going on that I see that uh, over the last five years I'm sure um both of you have as well where students are trying to figure out the best way to educate themselves in a time where you can do so much just sitting at home with your computer i'm not saying that's always a bad thing i think as as i said there are opportunities there but the positive advice would be figure out how to create community for yourself with your fellow law students um, as much as you can and by the way it's one of the greatest things about going to law school you're going to make lifelong friends um the richness of the experience is going to be wonderful and so you know, get the most you can out of that. And Willamette, by the way, to make it Willamette specific, is a very friendly place. Lots of there's good space. The building is a very nice space. There's lots of room. Lots of opportunity for students to meet in all kinds of different ways.
2: Yeah, I love that. I think community is is clutch for success and for fun. I would add to that to. Set yourself up. I talk a lot about like margin. If you think about like a piece of paper, there's a margin, right? And um little red line, right? An inch or whatever. And I think it's important that we all keep the margin in our lives as we come into law school. You're gonna be under stress, you're gonna be tired at times, you're gonna have different opinions in front of you that might bring up different feelings that are really hard to work through. And if you keep that margin in your life and you get bumped in class or you have a bad experience or something is upsetting, like you have enough space to still be on the so called page, like you're not falling off the mat, falling off the page, right? So for me, going into law school, I knew I wanted to keep up like my fitness. That was really important to me. Like my running or playing soccer or whatever is a space that I can be where. I get to just like be by myself and that's really important. And at times when I was like trying to study too much, I'd be like, well, I don't have time to go for my hour run. Well, then I didn't do as well that day. So for me, I think it's like finding the community and getting some accountability to that community, but also knowing yourself and knowing that if you need to step away for a bit, or if you, you know, whatever your thing is, like you have a weekly phone call with a really good friend from Pat, like keep that. But also kind of know, you may not have as much time for that. So find something that's really important to you. Keep that margin in your life. Fight for that margin in your life so that this isn't an all-consuming, can't, like, don't be pulling all-nighters, you know, like, we need to sleep, all of that. But I think finding that community can also help create some of that margin in your life so that you can really focus and minimize some of those distractions. But do a little bit of self-care while also realizing, I mean, like Professor Bridgman, I want you to go all in. I want this to be a great experience. You should be on campus a lot and eating and breathing the law in some ways, and that's the fun of it. But but keep some of that margin because they'll have some hard times where you're going to need that margin that space uh, in your life. Um, we have two amazing places near campus that you can go and get away for a little bit with a like half mile walk, which is sometimes like perfect. Um, So Riverfront Park connects to Minto and it's a great space to go and take a 30 minute walk in between classes. Uh, We also have Bush Park, which is really close to us. And one of my Hot tips is actually the hospital cafeteria is quite good. So if you want to uh go by the hospital cafeteria, pick up a really well-priced, well-made, you know, lunch, and then like take it into bush park and come back, you can do all of that well within an hour. So um think of your resources around. But yeah. Hospital food. Okay. I know it's really random, <laughs> but I swear it's good food. It's good food. Like it's it's you know, you just get to go in and go out. It's so weird. I know. You guys are like, what? But it's right there, and it's uh, sometimes it's nice to get away from Willamette. Like we have a, a better cafeteria on campus than than Salem, but sometimes it's nice to get away and get some space.
0: Professor Bridgman, is there somewhere in Salem that you would recommend?
1: Um, I think I think we've got uh, Salem Cinema is a cool place. It's a nice <laughs> uh, little independent movie theater where you can see something that's not Fast and Furious or Marvel, <laughs> whatever. Um, <laughs> right across from a really nice pizza place called Cristo's. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, good pizza and a movie night that and that's not quite walking distance from the law school, but it's not very far either. Um, So that's a good tip. Also, I would say check out if you're looking at places to live and you don't have to be in the city. Some people just want to be in Portland or maybe or or Salem. But if you like if you don't mind small towns or rural communities, there's some nice little communities around salem where you might find more affordable housing and the commute wouldn't be bad so places like albany or independence or little communities like that are worth a look if you're still looking for housing and you want to you know you like that really small town kind of feel
0: well professor bridgman professor sandrick thank you for for joining us on the podcast today it was a pleasure to talk to you i want to thank you for your time and your wisdom
1: Yeah, thanks for doing this. And I want to say congratulations to all those students on um, this big adventure that you're starting. We're certainly excited to see you this fall. It's a great time, I think, to be a lawyer. We need more good lawyers, despite what, you know, whatever your brother-in-law says at Thanksgiving. (laughs) We really, the world really does need more good lawyers right now. And it's, I think, a great time to be entering the profession.
2: Thanks for having us.